Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. All right, guys, we've got a really special show for you. Of course, you guys are listening to Agent Investor, the only brand that helps agents get off the real estate roller coaster. And most of you know, I was an agent just like everybody who's listening right now. And it wasn't until I did my first investing deal that my income stopped going every month up and down and up and down. And so a lot of what we talk about is investing passively. For me, investing passively really started when I first read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And in the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, long story short, they basically just said, buy assets, the cash flow, get a really good property manager, close your eyes, sit back, and you're going to be wealthy. A lot of what we try to do at Agent Investor is prevent everybody who's listening from making some of the mistakes that we've made. Bob DeVito, who managed a lot of our small multifamily properties when we own them, is going to be, we're going to be talking about kind of nightmare situations and nightmare stories about owning small multifamily. I'm going to talk a little bit about why we moved more towards apartments than small multifamily. And I talked a little bit about that last week, but I really want to get into the stories and the types of stuff that you actually see on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you're listening in another part of the market, uh, another part of the country, just know that most areas where you're going to cash flow, you're going to run into similar situations. Like you're not buying cash flowing assets in the highest end areas. Um, so without further ado, Bob, welcome to Agent Investor. Good to be here. Before we talk about you kind of like managing our properties, what made you going back when you first started your property management company get into property management? And do you kind of know what you were getting yourself into when you first got the idea to, to run a property management company? Um, yeah, I think I knew what I was getting into, but I got into it because I like dealing with people. Not typical, you know, like you, I was selling and not loving the traditional real estate selling, you know, to regular homeowners, regular buyers. That type of emotion was not good for me. Didn't love it. Not warm and fuzzy. So I kind of worked my way into a distress type of market with bank property short sales, which led me into... I met a lot of investors in that market, mm -hmm. which led me to selling them multifamilies, them not wanting to manage them or wanting to sell them immediately because the tenants were killing them. I started managing properties and the more I was selling, the more I was getting properties to manage. So that's kind of how it started probably in 2007, you know, when the, when the foreclosure market was really, really shitty. Well, it was good, but the regular market was shitty and people were buying multis then, you know, in some of our, you know, more distressed cities for 30, 40, 50,000 on paper, they looked great. They were cash flowing monthly, 
yearly numbers look great. Everything looked really good for them on paper, which is why they bought, obviously. Yeah, I think that's going to kind of probably be a little bit of a theme kind of throughout what we're going to talk about, which is like there is a big difference between reading the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad and saying, hey, buying asset, you know, anywhere, doesn't matter. Make sure that it works on paper and it's going to work for you in real life. There's Mm -hmm. another thing to actually operate those assets and have them work for what you're looking for. And at the end of the day, what most people who are listening right now are looking for is passive income, meaning like you're owning an asset, it's throwing off monthly income, and you're not having to really deal with a lot of day-to-day stress or headache or hassle. And it's crazy, like some of the prices that you're talking about, because I, I remember, you know, properties like in areas like Haverhill and Lawrence, and I'm sure like that was kind of the neck of the woods that you're talking about for thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar multifamilies, buying three families in Lynn for a hundred thousand dollars, and again. No matter what, really, no matter what part of the market that you live in, there were distressed assets that you could buy discounted that didn't just look okay on paper. They looked really good on paper. With that being said, you sold some of these to people, and then you said that sometimes they wanted to sell them immediately. Like, why would somebody who bought this asset, the cash flows on paper, you know, that's going to make them a millionaire down the road, like, want to sell immediately? Well, I think most people go into this. This is the way that I dealt with a lot of the investors is they go into it. And I think most investors think if I can buy one or two or two or three houses, own them for 30 years, you know, if you get them for 80, 80,000 in 30 years, the tenants will pay them off. Mm-hmm. They'll be worth whatever, a half a million. And I'll have 1.5 million sitting there mm-hmm. with three properties except for the fact that it doesn't really go that smoothly because all of these people who bought had that dream. Mm -hmm. They all thought, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave these houses to my kids, whatever they're going to do, or it's going to be their retirement. Started getting phone calls, started dealing with tenants. And of course, when you buy well-priced homes, they don't come with good tenants. Yes, It's just reality. All of them, pretty much 99% of these people within six months will just call me, say, can you dump it back on the market? Me, I would just think to myself, like, all right, I know what it said on paper. And I would always help, like, it's not real what you're seeing on paper. It's just made up shit. Like, it, <laughs> could, it, could it be real in the perfect scenario? Yes, nothing's perfect. So when they would call me, I'd be like, all right, you're not making the 2500 a month you thought you were making, but you're still making 800 Like, is that okay? And the answer was always absolutely not mm. for this, the problems that I'm having. Yeah. And especially in our state, in Massachusetts, and a lot of states are like this, where you just can't not get paid on the first and evict on the second. It just doesn't work that way. I know. That's that's another thing that I think in a lot of these books, educational type stuff, they don't talk. They don't talk about a few things. And I think one thing they don't talk a lot about in a lot of them is the tenant landlord laws by state and how they vary and how that dictates kind of a lot. So on, on that kind of segue, like what does happen? Say in a state like Massachusetts, and there's a lot of states that are out there, you can look up like how tenant friendly or landlord friendly an area is. But 
in a state like Massachusetts, let's say that somebody doesn't pay you, what is the real process for getting that unit vacant? How long does it take? What are you going through and stuff like that? Well, it all depends on the tenant and how good they are at manipulation, right? If someone doesn't pay you on the first, it's so, you know, you wait, you wait. So once you get to the 15th, you have options. You can send them a 14-day notice and hope they pay you at that point, or you can just send them an eviction notice. But, you know, some if it's January 15th and I send them a 30-day notice, it doesn't take effect till March 1st. So when March 1st comes, if they don't pay, we file again, and then we get a court date. And when you go to court in Massachusetts, all they want you to do is negotiate. They don't want you, they don't not gonna say, hey, yeah, I'm giving you a, a week to get out to the tenant. They want you to negotiate, meaning, okay, we're into you know the end of March now. So how about if you give the tenant, you sit with the tenant and there's someone who's negotiating just sitting there with you, and they want you to give them, okay, I'll give you till May 1st to get out. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll pay you. Maybe they won't. Depends on your agreement with them. If you want them to pay, you might have to give them the June 1st. But when May 1st comes, they're either out or you have to file again. And then you can get the final eviction, which is going to cost you again to get, you know, the moving company there, to get the locksmith there, um, to get all of the things that need to happen to get them actually out of the property. Because if they wait till the last day and they don't leave, Mm -hmm. you know, the constable knocks on their door, and if there's shit in there, you can't throw it out, put it in storage. There's a lot. I mean, it can take many, many months, again, depending on the tenant, depending on many different factors with the tenant. If they're young and they're smart, they can push it and push it. If they're elderly, the court's not going to let you you know, throw an elderly person or someone with a young baby out in the street. So you do need to take that into consideration. So it's it's just cost, right? It's yep. holding costs. So a regular investor, sometimes they can't handle that. Or even if an investor is coming out with, you know, when they when they came out with the giving people ability to be owner occupied in threes and four families through FHA, they can move in that house and three tenants can stop paying them. Mm. Can they afford to make that payment when they're pretty much approved based on the rents? You know, that's the house hack that everybody talks about, right? Like, oh, you know, first time buyer, get three and a half percent down, buy your first four family, you know, live in it for a year, move out. And again, sounds great. Yeah. If you got the perfect tenants and not a lot of them. Yeah. And there's so many different things that you said that I want to kind of touch on. The first is that one of the reasons that we've shifted away from small multifamily and I'm, you know, purposely telling the story as of, you know, where we're recording right now, May 2023, is back when you were selling these properties, short sales, foreclosures, whatever, people were paying $100,000 for these same assets that were throwing off less rent, but there was way more cash flow. Whereas like in May 2023, people are buying these assets on paper, having a few hundred bucks of cash flow, hoping and they need every single person to pay them every single month or there's going to be a problem. And, right. and it's just such a different thing where when I look kind of at um, you know, the risk profile of you know, flipping a house or buying an asset or building something or whatever, it's, the, the risk profile has never been so high because the margins to actually do this are so low. Like you, know, you miss a few payments, 
And a lot of times people who are doing the house hack, they're, they're out at that point. Right. Like they, they can't do it. But then the other thing, you know, we have here real life tenant horror stories. And, and just for the people who are listening, how common is it for that situation to happen? Let's say that you buy a three family with two, two tenants in there. How common is it for there to be either one or two non-paying tenants and for that tenant to, to go through that process of not kicking the can down the road? Well, I think it depends how you're buying, right? So, and you, you, I'm sure you remember, I used to text you all the time, like, can you just buy a fucking house <laughs> in a goodie, like in, in like downtown Boston? Yep. So I can get, you know, a $4,000 a month college student in there. Yeah. And so, you know, as far as how calm, it's very common when you're getting deals because like when you first started investing, what was the cap rate? 10? Like you wouldn't have, people wouldn't have, investors oh, wouldn't even look at a property. I, I wouldn't look under 10. Right. For sure. And I think, yeah. And the way that I, and I could be wrong on this. I don't know, but probably not. I'm usually not. But I think in reality, once they started letting people, regular owner occupieds, buy the threes and fours, and I think that's, and I have to go back in the timeline, but I'm pretty sure that's when the cap rates shit the bed. A hundred percent. And it wasn't even just that though. It was that, Inventory is so low now that a lot of people are house hacking, maybe not because they want to, but because that's the only thing they can qualify for. Whereas back then, you know, say the areas you're talking about, you could buy a, a Haverhill multifamily for under $100,000, but you could also buy a really nice Haverhill single family for in the 200s. Right. So you didn't really, most people had the choice back then to say, do I want to buy a multi? Do I want to live in a single? Whereas now, a lot of times, it's like, well, I can't afford the single, so I have to live in the multi. And that crush cap rates, for sure. Right. And But you're right, though. I mean, going back to that period of time, what I, what I did wrong is instead of me saying, hey, that Boston multifamily that you're talking about only cash flows a couple hundred bucks, but there's going to be less hassle and headache and stress, and the rents are going to increase over the period of time, and it's a lower cap rate just chasing the highest cap rate. Definitely one of the mistakes that I made, which is that always just chasing high cap rates, which is another thing that I think, you know, academically, when you look kind of, you read a book or you listen to, to something and you're always, you know, fighting for that. But that's something I wish I had kind of done in hindsight is going after maybe lower cap rate assets, which is what we're doing now. And not necessarily, you know, fighting to get the highest yield we possibly can or highest cash flow that we can on a month to month basis. You know, we talked about non-payment and obviously the problem, the challenges that that face and then it's not that uncommon and that depending on the area, it can happen a lot longer than others. But just to give people some perspective, you know, you kind of highlighted like maybe a six to eight month window where somebody might not be able to pay you and, and not move. But in terms of like nightmare horror story type things, what was the longest that somebody didn't pay us? I can think of one specifically, but how long did it go on for and why? I think the longest was 10 Blossom in Chelsea. Yep. That's what I was thinking too. Common. Yep. That lady threatened my life at least 50 times, but she was just very aggressive. The city... Every day she went to the city. I mean, every single day. And the city used to call me every single day saying, you need to get, I'm like, I can't get her out if you keep 
filing complaints that, that are not real because she's forcing you. And the way that the city works is if someone files a complaint, they have to follow up on it, mm-hmm. whether it's real or not. So it's just the way the city operates. So she would go every day. My floors, this, my, you know, this doesn't work. That doesn't work. They would show up a couple of days later. Oh yeah, it's all good. It works. Close it out. Mm-hmm. She'd file another one. And she did that. God, that had to be almost a year and a half. It took us to get her out. You know, we, we couldn't do anything because she was so disruptive to the building. It was a three family. The other tenants ended up leaving because she was just a nightmare. She ended up buying a dog, a big fucking dog, like uh, like a Rottweiler. Like that dog was scary as shit. She literally, I, I want to say, would call me probably three to four times a week and try to record me saying like she would try to catch me and stuff and she would always tell me oh i'm recording you just so you know and she would try to catch me of course i didn't never said anything to her but she was probably the biggest nightmare tenant that i've ever seen just because she knew how to do everything to prolong the eviction and we had a lawyer who would go in you know who was doing the eviction for us and she's nothing she could do so and how often what percentage of the tenants fit into that box where they were doing everything possible to be be a problematic, not pay, um, and all that stuff? Well, I think originally when you bought the buildings, almost all of them, because they all knew, you know, they lived, they were all grossly under-rented in, you know, buildings that were not very well kept up. You know, some of them were, a lot of them weren't. So pretty much all of the tenants, the minute that we would buy the properties, would file at the, you know, because they knew we were going to send them an Mm -hmm. eviction or a rent increase. So they would all file with the city immediately, just, you know, a complaint with the Board of Health. Mm -hmm. And once the complaint gets filed, you can't serve them anything. You have to fix the complaint. A lot of, and this is, I think, the, the part that a lot of people don't understand is like, I remember we bought, you bought from one guy, remember Freeman Haverhill, Street? Haverhill, yeah, all the Haverhill properties. And yeah. you bought two fours next to each other. You bought the one on Jackson Street. You bought a bunch from that guy. Mm-hmm. And he did nothing for 20-something years. And the, the tenants called the city all the time on him. They never forced him to do anything. He knew somebody very well down there, obviously. And the tenants would tell me, yeah, that we call the Board of Health. They drive by and keep driving. <laughs> the day we bought it, the day that you bought it, I got it, we got a notice from the city. Yeah. And we had to do so much shit in them buildings. I know. That's, that's another thing that, that you know, I, I, I kind of forget some of the stuff because it's dealing with tenants, but then it's also dealing with the repairs that need to be made and going back to the type of assets that are being bought. And again, we're speaking maybe a little bit more in New England, but most multifamilies in New England were built 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And even the ones that were renovated 15 years ago probably still need work today. And then the codes keep getting updated. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, not to go into this direction right now, but these are just all reasons why we're now doing new construction apartments. You know, talking about being in, in better areas, talking about, having like they're just brand new talking about not inheriting any tenants mm-hmm. us being the ones that are kind of like putting them in the buildings versus you know just inheriting you know people and and that's another thing that I think 
is kind of a negative about buying multifamily today. Whereas when you were selling those properties in 07, 08, 09, and 10, a lot of them were vacant. Oh, yeah. A lot were completely, completely vacant. Almost all of them, yeah. Most of them were vacant. So, And I remember most of the properties that we bought were vacant. And as time went on, all the vacant properties, all the foreclosures, all the short sales, they kind of just went away. Um, and they're not there today. And so what, what was left over, maybe going back to like 2015, 16, 17, you'd be lucky if you could get maybe a three-family with two people and out. Right, but a lot of times you were buying it maybe with two tenants in there, and then we got to a point. There was one point I don't remember what year it was, maybe 2017 or 18, where we just said we're not buying any more buildings with all tenants in them, mm -hmm. and and you know we just kept making you know adjustments all the while, you know we kept pushing out like the areas we were buying in. You know we started out in you know relatively commutable to Boston, and then we started going further and further out. How would you kind of like compare and contrast talking about areas that it's a little bit more landlord friendly? How would you compare New Hampshire to Massachusetts just in that uh, capacity? New Hampshire is a lot of suburban, a lot of land. There's not a lot of multis except for a very few cities. I mean, there are scattered like every city, but, you know, like I think you guys went up to Manchester, mm -hmm. you know, it's the heroin capital of the world. Yep. And we found that out relatively quickly. I think you bought a 12-unit and a 6-unit on the six, – yeah, you bought a 6 on West Street, and then you bought the 12 – I can't remember the name of the other street. So you bought 18 units with intention of, you know, continuing on. But that was – yeah, that was a friggin' night. The day you bought West Street, I got a call from the cops just telling me, like, we're monitoring your building just so you know. And there's two heroin dealers in there. Yeah. And then the rest of the people in there were either in rehab for heroin or, you know, not in rehab, still actively using it. Not the best area, but, you know, if you're going to buy for value, that's where you're going to be. And that's the thing, you know, again, getting back to like what is going on today in the market. It's like those are the areas where you almost have to buy to even have a prayer at cash flowing. So if you're going to buy in those areas, now you have all of these other problems that you have to deal with. And, and we just decided, you know, maybe it was like 2019, somewhere in that vicinity that we just said, we're going to sell pretty much all of these small multifamilies that we have and just push into the bigger, bigger developments, you know, for, for these reasons. And getting back to kind of, you know, why everybody's here. Everybody's here because they want, they want passive income. They want to have a nice life. They want to be on, the, you know, theoretically on the beach, earning money, not having a job, just, you know, collecting rents. What would you say, like, as you're managing these properties? Because you're managing them, right? So your objective is handle all the problems and maybe not necessarily bring them to us. With these types of properties, why isn't that necessarily possible? Like, why couldn't you just manage them, take care of stuff? and leave us out and us just kind of collect checks? Because, you know, there's a lot of money involved with repairs, with, you know, when the city sends me anything, I'm not on it. I'm the property manager. So if Bill's on it or you're on it, you know, I have to let you know. Like, you know, we got this notice. 
here's what I'm going to do. It's not a big deal, but it is a notice. We have to take care of it. And, you know, we get 30 days to fix something and the tenant doesn't let us in. Sometimes they give you an extension. Sometimes they don't. So they send you a notice to go to court. Well, Mm -hmm. they don't send it to me. They send it to me, but it's, you know, your name or bill on it. So I need to tell you. But the bigger thing is cost. You know, I can't, you know, I can't spend thousands of dollars. Well, I can, but you probably wouldn't have liked that. So I need to get, you know, I need to let you know, like, oh, well, if I call you or I text you a bill and I'm like, you know, this property needs, you know, $3,000, like I'm getting a phone call. Like, why? Yeah. Well, this is why. Well, are you sure? Did you get multiple? Like, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is, but it, it needs to be done. So, you know, you can't really just be out of it. Unless you just don't care about money. Hey everyone, this is Tom Caffarella. I want to quickly interrupt the podcast to number one, thank all of my loyal listeners of the Asian Investor Podcast and tell you guys really quickly about an exciting event we have coming up. Uh, It's a two-day event. It's called the Passive Income Real Estate Investor Event um, that you can find out more details at PassiveIncomeEvent.com. We're going to be doing a two-day training session teaching all of the agents and all of the investors at the event on how to achieve financial freedom through real estate. If you're like me and your goal is to not work 80, 100 hours a week grinding, selling real estate, flipping homes, um, definitely check out this event. We're going to teach you how to build a passive income portfolio so that you can retire, so that you can work when you want, how you want, and ultimately achieve financial freedom. So again, go to PassiveIncomeEvent.com for more details. And we look forward to seeing you at the upcoming event. Right. And and I think, you know, all of these things, like all of the problems, whether it's that money needs to be spent or somebody needs to be dealt with or the police are being called, it's like a lot of them have to go up to the owner. And it, and it makes it where it's just, it's not passive you know, decisions on whether you're going to evict or not evict or how much you're willing to spend or are you going to give, you know, somebody cash for keys? How much are you going to offer them? Just all of that stuff. Are you, you know, are, are we going to renovate the properties after the people move out or not? Or what type of renovation is going to be there? So they're just extremely, in, you know, intensive, time intensive, capital intensive. And we, bought, again, we bought them at the right time. We bought them when the market was low. We bought them when you could cash flow pretty well on them. And, you know, of course, this is going to sound like I'm very, you know, anti-small multifamily, but I I just think that until you can buy small multifamily in areas that are worth holding, in areas that you feel good about holding them, like I wouldn't be a huge advocate of doing it, at, at least as of right now. What are some other just like, specific, you know, horror story or nightmare, you know, tenants or situations that you were involved with when dealing with our properties? Well, I think as a property manager, like, so if you get a three family or a four family, which is all you guys bought, I mean, Mm -hmm. you had a few twos in the beginning, but you sold them immediately. But like, there's two types of people in there. There's either a group that's all together as one and they're against the landlord, and they're for themselves, obviously. Or there's people in there that are constantly fighting each other. Neither one of them's good for you yeah. as a landlord, because you know if they're all together, 
They know what each other's doing. If one of them gets a notice to up rent, the other one start fucking with you or doing whatever they're going to do. Or, you know, if they're all against each other, it's just constant calls of this one's doing this. You know, they're on my thing or they're, you know, they're, they're leaving their shit in the hallway, they're leaving stuff in the basement. They're not supposed to be in there. So there's always, you know, that part of the business is a prop. I mean, the, the property management business in a landlord and yourself is kind of a negative business. Mm-hmm. You don't get calls yeah. saying hello. You only get calls saying there's a problem. No matter what time of day it is, you know, you have to fix it. And whether it's eight in the morning or midnight, there's an issue. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as far as in, I mean, there's so many, I mean, horror stories are just, I mean, I'm like, I'm gray from these properties, truthfully. But there's a million horror stories. But I think the biggest thing for me as a manager was just seeing how good tenants are because people look at tenants and whether they're on a program or they're, you know, working at, you know, CVS and holding two jobs and 7-Eleven at night, they know how to survive. Like this is their house. Mm -hmm. This is where they live and they know how to play the system. And the other thing in Massachusetts is when you walk into most courtrooms for an eviction, there is free lawyers for tenants. They don't have to afford them. They can just walk up to the table and say, I want representation. And next thing you know, you're in court against a lawyer when you wouldn't think you would be. Yeah. Because you'd say, oh, they don't have enough money to afford a lawyer. They don't need any money. In Massachusetts, they just get a free lawyer. Mm. So, you know, there's a million stories of, you know, different things happening, you know, fires, you know, people shooting heroin on the back porch in front of children, People, you know, in Peabody, you know, when you had the Foster Street house, I mean, I'm getting calls from the cops every other day. We had a couple of tenants in there who were shooting up constantly, leaving their needles all over the place. The other, that was an eight-unit building. The other tenants had children. They're picking up needles. They're doing, you know, all this stuff. It's just, it's crazy. The bed bugs store, like there is, we, you had, um, that, actually, that building in, in Peabody, we had a, a decent couple living in there. She left him. He started being a little bit late on his rent. So I was, I, w- I was at, knocked on his door one day and I walked in. All he had was an air mattress. Mm-hmm. And this guy, he was probably in his 30s, but he, his body was covered from head to toe with scabs. I'm like, what the hell's going on with you? He's like, I don't know, but I'm itchy this. So I'm looking, he's only, he has no furniture, has like a single ear mattress with like a cover on it. And I'm like, kid, it looks like you're getting bit by something. And he lifts up his thing. There was more bed bugs than I could ever see. Now this had been going on for like six months. Yeah. And I'm like, you got to tell me this shit. Like this, it's definitely already spread to at least one unit. Yeah. I mean, bed bugs move slowly, but we ended up having to treat the whole building took me i had ended up having to evict him we ended up getting him out but little shit like that like tenants you know he's not going to call me and tell me because he's afraid to get evicted mm. so instead he sleeps with bed bugs and i'm telling you it was caked it was disgusting but little things like that they just happen mm. and i think the bigger thing is just people underestimating the street smarts of the tenants that they have yeah And like I said, these people can, they just know how to survive. They know how to play the system and they're just, they're good at it. Yeah. 
Alex, it's, it, it is crazy. So what would you say, I guess, to somebody who, what type of personality do you need to have in order to even make these work? Well, I think the biggest thing is you can't really care. Like you can't be looking at money as like the, the you know, if you look at money as like it's everything to you, it's a tough business because you are going to spend money. You are going to lose certain months. And I think a lot of people. Do you, would, do you think that you need to have like good cash reserves in order to. to I, I think you really do. Yeah. And I think you have to have a pretty laid back personality and you have to understand people are people. You know, shit happens. Your best tenant could be your worst tenant with a job loss, a breakup, you know, a family member dies. Who knows? Anything could really, you know, send someone in a spiral and you could, you know, be moving along for three months. Everyone's paying, you know, someone, you know, your best tenant, all of a sudden he can't pay you. He lost his job. The other people in the building hear about it. And they're like, oh, he ain't paying. He's causing a fucking ruckus. I ain't paying. You know, shit happens. Like, yeah. you know, I think when, when I was selling all of your, your properties for you, it was kind of funny because the agents who have these investor buyers, a lot of these people are newer because of the whole FHA scenario who are buying the threes and fours. And they don't really tell them the truth. You know, they just look at the numbers and they say, oh, this house is great. You'll live here. You'll get this. You'll only pay 200 a month for your mortgage. And these people buy. And I don't say, shit, I'm selling the property. Like, it's not my job. Almost every single one of them would call me after and be like, well, the tenants stopped paying. Not my problem. Like, what are yeah. you doing? Oh, like, I, you know, I, I either raise their rent immediately or, you know, I told them they can't use this space anymore. They can't. Yeah. They change their lifestyle. Yep. And people get pissy about it. I know. I think that's like, you know, again, I almost feel like I, I would love to see kind of the statistics on it. But I, I, I can almost guarantee that a lot of these small multifamilies, most of them just keep changing hands. Like, I don't know what the statistics are, the average length of time that people kind of hold on to them for. And again, you, like you said, everybody, every single person, including us, goes into it thinking, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to own it not for 30 years. I'm going to own it for 50 years. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to hand it down to my kids. Mm -hmm. And actually one of the things that Bill said to me that actually made us sell was he said, okay, we're doing, you know, decent financially, whatever. Do you want to hand these properties to our kids? And that was the first time I actually thought about that and thinking, you know, with the original thought, okay, this is passive. My kids can inherit or like, you know, eventually pass on these great assets to them and then thinking they're not great assets. Right. Um, they're not even close to great assets. And while they can make money and we made money on them, we, we did make money on them. And of course, like over the years, they got paid down when we did sell them. We, we fortunately the market went up and we bought them at the low point, which is again, another reason why I'm not necessarily a big advocate of going all in on these today because the market's high Mm -hmm. and you're you're buying them them on thin margins if you're not to me with these type of assets if you're not getting a good price and and the and you're not going to get appreciation and you're only going to make you know two three four hundred bucks a month and you're going to own that for seven or eight years when you look back you're going to be like wow you might have even lost money potentially on them because we i don't want to say we got bailed out but a lot of the 
benefit that we got from owning them was through the the mortgage, the principal pay down and appreciation combined, mm-hmm. not necessarily like the operations of them, which is again another thought that I think that a lot of people have in the beginning. They're like, I'm buying this property, a cash flow is five hundred a month. I buy ten of these. Now I get five thousand a month. That's right. the salary. Mm-hmm. When in reality, like it just doesn't work like that. And 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 there's months where you're completely negative or you know, having to fix something, there could be a year where you're completely negative and it just, um, you definitely need the reserves, I think. And you need to have like a very long-term mindset and just, you know, deal with it as it's kind of going on. Yeah. I think to buy how you bought, you do have to have a lot of reserves because there is, you know, you're getting a steep discount, you know, because of how you buy. And there's a reason, obviously, nothing comes that you know, steep of a discount without there being a lot of issues. And, you know, you guys obviously have, you know, multiple businesses, you could handle the upfront. And a lot of those buildings, because of how they were condition wise, or just tenant wise, was six to eight months of nothing coming in. Yeah. And then when we finally got them clear, then you had to spend the money to upgrade the unit so we could rent them to, you know, people who would appreciate them. So yeah, it's funny. Deb said scaring the bejesus out of me, but it's like this is not; these are not exaggerated. Nothing we have said is even one percent exaggerated. There, in fact, I'm sure. Like if I push Bob more, we get more crazy stories out of him that are like stuff that you don't want to hear. And I'm sure he's, you know, um, in the back of his head, like, hey, this is live and you know, public and whatnot. So I'm not going to probably you know, go into, you know, super detail, but this is, this isn't like scaring. This is actual reality. And and again, this is the reason, like if, if this stuff worked seamlessly without, you know, any, any issues, like I would be doubling down on them because again, on paper, all of this stuff works really, really well. It's just that in, in real life, like there's a reason it's called buy and hold. Mm-hmm. You know, buying it, but really where you're making the money is holding it. And the longer that you can hold it, the better you're going to do. And if if you're in so much pain during the holding period that you have to sell it, then it doesn't work. Right. And that's why, you know, you had so many uh, clients that you sold multifamilies to calling you whatever it was a short period of time later, just being like, hey, can we dump these back? And most of the people that we bought these from we're dumping them to us. They were dumping, like you said, their problem to us that we were inheriting and, you know, going into it, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed, like be like, Hey, I can't believe they sold this, this thing. And then you're like, Oh, this is why they sold it. Yeah. And I, and I think it is good for some people to buy one or two houses. If you can afford to buy and put a good chunk down in some good areas or next to a college where you're going to get, you know, almost guaranteed rents from the parents. I mean, you're going to dealing with college students and that's its own little issue, but you know, at least you're going to get paid. Yeah. You know, and people always say, you know, I, one of the biggest things I always heard was it's okay. Like I'm just going to put, you know, programs in and they pay fair market or slightly above fair market. And that's okay. But, you know, we did a lot of that. I think, you know, yeah. At one point, at the peak of all of your units, we probably had 60% programs. Yep. And those people, oh, God, they are not great. The The payments came in, mm-hmm. but the aggravation and the repairs and 
all of the other shit. And don't get me wrong, there are some good people. I'm not saying all of them, but you know, a good majority of them were just not good mm -hmm. tenants. Period. And yeah, we did get paid every month, but you know, that was another. And again, when you deal, this is the way I look at it. Like when you deal with government, and we kind of both know how I feel about government, but when they decide they want to do something like we were in the middle of all of that. And I, some people who live in mass will probably remember this, but a lot of programs were housing people in hotels and they would get, you know, the hotels were getting their rooms filled and the government was paying them like they pay a regular landlord. And then at one point they stopped, they, they stopped doing that. So all of them inspectors that would go to the hotels, because when you're in a program, they inspect minimum once a year. We had our group of inspectors, the hotels had their groups. All of a sudden they stopped renting to hotels. All them inspectors had nothing to do. So instead of yeah. the government saying, hey, we should you know, get rid of this and save some money, they moved them all over to the other programs that we were all in. And all of a sudden, I'm getting calls every other week, like they're inspecting properties every three months now. You know, all they're really looking for is safety issues. But, you know, they start talking to tenants, tenants start listening to them. And all of a sudden, now the tenants are like, oh, like, you know, my, you know, the corner of my floor is up. I need you here, you know, within 24 hours to fix it. Well, I don't have a guy in that area till, you know, Friday, it's Monday not going to happen. I got to take him off another job, send him there. It's just cost mm -hmm. and everything, you know, as time went on, costs start going up, which not affecting me, it's affecting you or any landlord. So another comment just came in and, and I think it addresses kind of a bigger point. The question was, is it better to stick to individual condo units? And this is kind of the, the types of questions that we help analyze for people that are in the inner circle. If you have not booked a call to talk to me about things like this, I would highly recommend you do so. You can do that at www.agentinvestorinnercircle.com. If you're interested in you know, getting help and mentorship and coaching from us, that's the first step to get on a call with me to see if we can help you. Again, you can go to www.agentinvestorinnercircle.com. Because the answer to that question, is it better to stick with individual condo units or is it better to do multifamilies or is it better to invest passively or is it better to just fix and flip or is it better to buy you know, short-term rentals? That's an individual question that I can't answer with knowing a bunch more details about you specifically. I mean, I can talk globally about how I feel about condos. And the one thing to keep in mind with all of this stuff, so you have to really think about like, what is your objective? And that's why when people join the inner circle, we walk you through a five-step process to figure out where you're at today, where you want to be in five to 10 years. And then the third thing that we talk about is what's your investment vehicle? Like, are you going to flip? Are you going to wholesale? Are you going to buy small multifamilies, condos? Are you going to um, invest passively, just earn income and then invest in deals? Because depending on who you are, what stage of life you're in, what you're trying to achieve, that can be different. Like, and I'll just address the condos just really quickly. The first thing about condos is that you'll have a really, really hard time in 2023 finding condos that are going to cash flow unless you're just buying them cash or you're doing something to, to pay down, you know, the note as much as you can. 
The good thing about condos is that, you know, the exterior and, you know, a lot of them snow removal and plowing and, and all that type of stuff is taken care of for you. So they're kind of by definition more passive. But the only negative there is that you typically have condo fees associated with them, which tends to make them a lot less profitable. And then you can, you know, you can get hit with assessments as well. But it, it depends. It, it all really truthfully depends. And as we're sitting here talking about like how bad it is to own small multifamily, there are going to be some people that I'm going to talk to that we're going to leave the call being like, hey, you, maybe you should do small multifamily. Maybe you're the right type of person. You have the right goals. You're buying in the right locations. You have the right amount, you know, money, reserves, this, that. So every, every asset class is for a specific type of person depending on who you are. But I do think that like where we're kind of standing today, it's really hard to be profitable on passive income properties if you're not doing like the heavy construction apartments that we're doing. Like I think that there are a lot of negatives in a lot of pockets, whether it's short-term rentals and how overvalued those are and um, how they're so tied to discretionary income. I could go up and down kind of the list. And that's why we're doing like, I believe in what I'm doing because I've thought it out and I'm not saying I'm always going to be right, but there's a reason why we're doing what we're doing. And there's a reason why we sold all of these small multifamilies because it didn't, it, it wasn't helping us achieve our long-term objectives. And I think the, the long-term objectives that we have are very similar to what most people want, which again is ownership of assets. They're going to cash flow, appreciate over time and provide you with, the least amount of hassle that you can have with owning an asset and keeping in mind that nothing is ever completely passive. If you guys have any other questions, put them in the comment section. I'll take a look at them later today. Bob is definitely, you know, a wealth of knowledge with the stuff. He's got a ton of experience with it. Again, not that any of this stuff was to scare anybody, but it was just really like, you know, you call it real talk. Like this is, this is what people are talking about, like behind closed doors. Like what you see when somebody's selling you a coaching program or what you see on YouTube or in a book, it's going to be like the fairy tale version of this stuff, literally. And, you know, you have to be careful about kind of what you're doing and be smart about making sure that you know what you're getting into. And again, if you guys have any questions about, you know, what asset class is the right class for you or your specific um, investing strategies, I would encourage you, you know, to go today and book a call at www.agentinvestorinnercircle.com. The call is completely free, so there's no obligation to, to do anything after the call. You get a free strategy session, so you might as well take advantage of it. So thank you, Bob, for joining us. Thank you. Um, we, did, um, we did have an issue with Bob last week. I tried to get him on. He was, try he was trying to use his flip phone to, uh, to log in. So bad we had area I was in. Bad area. We tried to get him in the studio. And I do want to say just kind of something funny that I did mention in, in a Facebook post, but I don't think Bob saw it. Every time that Bob sends me a message or calls me, my daughter counts how many times he swears during the conversation. And she had one the other day. She said, oh, he only swore two times. I was so, good today. You were pretty good. Yeah, I think you were under 10, which is could could potentially be a world record for under an hour. Yeah. 
<laughs> I did well. So it's all good. But one last thing I will say is that you, what you did before yep. worked for you at the time. Like that was yes. a great strategy. Yes. Yep. And I think people have to understand that like you are, you know, and I'm not pumping your tires because God knows you can do that on your own. Yeah. But like, you know, when you when you switch to something and I've known you for a long time, you and Bill, and you guys are always in front of everything. And if someone can do today what you did 10 to 12 years ago buying, mm -hmm. good luck. And it will work, in the, you know, even yeah. short and long. Not sure that's possible anymore. Yeah, and it may, it may, and that's the interesting thing. Like a lot of people, when I talk to them about the stuff and saying like, you know, it's not a good time to buy right now. I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, it will be a really good time in a year. It will be a really good time in two years. That may not happen. Like that literally, like you may never see three families in greater Boston for under like, you know, close to a million bucks ever again. And I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying that like, that just goes with like the shifting, right? Things change. Like everything always changes. And this is why like another really reason why like being in the inner circle is important because you want to be ahead of whatever the next trend is. And this is why like I, I, I talk about so many trends and I get really, um, I, I don't know the right word, like enthusiastic almost about like the wrong trends because I can see them, you know, from like a mile away. And I see like so... When everybody's saying buy Bitcoin, when everybody's saying do short-term rentals, it is not the right thing to do. I promise you, like uh, every person in the world doesn't have the right idea at the right time. What usually, what it usually means in almost all cases is that you're behind the curve. Mm -hmm. So for the people that are on now and they're like, oh, I want to do short-term rentals, that ship sailed five years ago right. or, or whatever the time frame is. Like right. that's gone. Like, the, like the, all the money that... Like getting in early with any of these ideas is where the money's made, not getting in like when the last person is telling you like a stock tip. And that's what I feel like a lot of this stuff kind of is. It's like somebody looks at what we did 10 years ago and they go, well, Tom's telling me not to do it. He just doesn't want me to be successful. Like, no, like it, that ship just sailed like multiple years ago. Right. Because, um, I mean, I've told you a thousand times, like, why are you doing like, why are you giving away everything? Right. Mm -hmm. And I've said for, for at least six or seven years, because, you know, you do, you know, you are very honest for what you're doing. And, you know, I never really understood it in the beginning. But, you know, I, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. And, you know, everyone jumps on to make the little money afterwards. I'm going to sell a book, I'm going to sell a program, I'm going to do this. But as you said, it's too late then at that point. And I think since I've known you guys, you've always been doing things that no one else does. And people question it. I mean, it's natural to question, you know, why, you know, why would I believe you? Why would I do this? Well, you know, at this point, you do have the track record of yeah. being right, as hard as that is for me to say, and successful at it. So, you know, the day I met you, I thought you were a typical investor. Yeah. Like, here's another fucking guy who's telling me how great he's going to do. He's going to buy all this shit. And I remember thinking, I've met 50 of you yeah. in the last month. Yeah. But the difference is, is you follow through and you actually achieved your goals. The, the funny thing is, though, is like, I probably thought back then I knew more than now. Like now, like I feel more confident to say kind of like, you know, I, I don't know everything. I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen. But I do know that 
for the most part, we are putting a ton of thought into the stuff. And it's also like, you know, for people being in our inner circle, we're passing along this information, but I've got my own inner circle of people that I talk to that, you know, invest at a high level that we talk to each other. What's working for you in your market? What's working for you in your market? What's, what do you think the best strategy is? And, and that isn't always a guarantee that it's going to produce the best result or the best thought. But I, I can tell you that like, it, it a lot of times prevents you from doing stuff that just doesn't make any sense at all. And nothing's ever going to be perfect. But, you know, I, I think that the strategy itself, having the right strategy matters a good amount because you can be really good at a bad strategy that's not working in today's market and you'll still lose. Whereas, like, again, if you went back 10 years ago and you just started buying up like a bunch of multifamilies in Dorchester and Boston and you know, Lynn and whatever, like you probably could have done a lot of wrong things, but still ended up on top, which is why, you know, we're having this discussion today where it's like, don't do the wrong strategy, even though it worked, you know, at some point in the past. Yeah. Good point. All right, guys. So thank you um, for tuning in. We had a lot of guys, a lot of people stay on to the very end and I appreciate it. www.agentinvestorinnercircle.com. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Agent Investor Podcast. And especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show and leave a review, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get free weekly education, strategies, and to connect with other agent investors across the country, join our free Facebook group at agentinvestor.com. Again, that's agentinvestor.com.